Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. How appropriate that today uh, our brother Ryan read the last stanza in this psalm. We just finished the psalm. We kind of finished the psalm in Sunday school. We didn't get to go through every single stanza in the psalm, but we studied the psalm in Sunday school over the summer, looking at different stanzas. And then we were able to read through it together as a church, stanza by stanza. And as I said uh, during our announcements, we came to the end of our study in Ruth last Sunday, and we will be beginning a new study next Sunday in the book of Revelation. And so in the middle, I I thought it would be so appropriate that everything just kind of aligned around Psalm 119. And even what we are doing this semester with studying the book of Esther, with studying how to study the Bible, and with studying the book of Revelation, we are all about the Bible. Everything we are doing functionally is about the Bible. It is the center of what we are as a church, Christ's Bible church. We cannot see Christ and enjoy Him if we don't have the Bible, and we have no idea what a church even is gathered as a family if we don't have the Bible. The Bible is central to our understanding of everything that takes place in our lives. And so I I thought it would be appropriate just to spend time in Psalm 119 before we launch uh, the book of Revelation next Sunday. As I was thinking about this sermon, as I was thinking about uh, why we are studying through the book of Esther, why we are studying through the book of Revelation, uh, the the movie um, came to mind that the, uh, you guys remember with Mr. Miyagi, uh, the karate kid? I remember watching that movie. I remember that was just... Uh, it was supposed to be the, the best movie ever. My parents, I don't know if your parents ever did this for you, my parents kind of hyped it up a little too much, where when I actually watched it, I kind of thought, oh, okay, that's fine. Uh, it didn't change my life. But I remember there was one section, and I had heard about it, and even if you haven't seen the movie, you've probably heard somebody say to you before, wax on, wax off. And I, I, I thought, you remember in, in, the, in the movie... Uh, Mr. Miyagi's teaching this this boy to to be a a karate kid, to fight. And he says, your training begins now. And he gives him just a little rag with a little bit of wax and says, wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off. The kid's saying, I don't understand what I'm doing here. Aren't we going to start training? When are we going to start training? And it isn't until that last competition, that last fight, that the kid remembers. As he's fighting with somebody, he, he does the wax-on motion and the wax-off motion, and it defends the blows that are coming at him, and he connects the dots, and we as the audience connect, oh, that's what he was doing. Wax-on, block. Wax-off, block. And that's what he's trying to do. But until the karate kid knew that that was the point of that drill, the karate kid felt like, this is pointless. What am I doing? Why am I waxing a car? What's the point of this? And I think that sometimes, we even studied it this morning in in Family Bible Hour. Sometimes we do things as Christians and we wonder, why am I doing this? It feels like wax on, wax off to us. We just do it because we're told to do it. But why we do it, we don't know. Why do we read the Bible? Why do we study the Bible? Why do we dive deeply into the Bible? Why? As Donald Whitney once said, discipline without direction is drudgery. You can discipline yourself to read the Bible 
to study the Bible, to go to Bible study, to, to, to grapple with what the Word of God says. But if you don't have the direction of why you're doing this, it will become drudgery. Small groups will become drudgery. Church will become drudgery. Because you're just doing wax on, wax off, and you don't know why it has any purpose in your life. So I thought, let's remind ourselves. Let's remind ourselves this morning the beauty of God's word. Why we're spending time in God's word. Let's remind ourselves what these wax off and wax on moments are for when we dive into the word of God and the discipline that we have to study, how it produces something amazing in our lives. Maybe we've forgotten. Maybe our familiarity with the word of God has led to contempt. So let's remind ourselves. Let's do it with Psalm 119. Again, we've studied this. Many of us have studied this uh, just even over the summer together as a church in our Sunday school. It's the longest of all the Psalms. It's the longest chapter in the entirety of the Bible. Uh, David or Ezra probably wrote this. We don't have uh, an author given to us. It's 22 sections. It's 315 stanzas. It's 176 verses in our English Bible. Uh, It contains... 2,384 words. It would literally take us 15 to 17 minutes just to read it. It's longer than 30 entire whole books of the Bible. And the length of this psalm should make an impression upon us because it's a song about one thing, and that is the Word of God. It's a song about the Bible. If we were to ask God, if we were to think about what God would highlight for us, if he's going to write one song that's a, a better song than all the other songs, and he's going to make it huge and big and, and impressionable upon us, what would we think that God would write about? What would he make that song about? I think sometimes we would think maybe it would be about that he loves us, that he cares about us. His plan for our lives. There's a number of things that we would stick into that question. What would God, if he could write about anything as the biggest, the longest, the the, the highest song that he could sing, what would it be about? And he says, no, it's about the Bible. Because in the Bible, we know that God loves us. In the Bible, we know that he cares about us. In the Bible, he gives us his plan of redemption. So maybe, as we studied in this book, in this chapter over the summer, I think God's telling us that we should prioritize something that we often fail to prioritize. It's a beautiful poem. It's a song. It's an acrostic based on those eight, uh, the, the Hebrew alphabet. So it's um, just eight lines with every single Hebrew letter beginning each stanza split into those 22 uh, beautiful sections. It's amazing. A beautiful poem. Maybe for the purpose of memorization, David Livingston memorized it when he was nine years old. Memorize the entirety of Psalm 119. And the theme of this entire chapter about the Word of God is the believer's life dominated and controlled by what the Word of God says. So, since we can't read the entirety of it, we could, but it would take pretty much the rest of our time together. I want to read one stanza. We read this a a few Sundays ago. I want to read one stanza. We'll pray and we'll ask God's blessing on our time. Then we'll just dive into... The psalmist's mind, his heart, and his actions based on everything that he's writing here. So the stanza I want to look at this morning starts in verse 129. Verse 129. Psalm 119, verses 129 to 136. The psalmist says, Your testimonies are wonderful. 
Therefore, my soul observes them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I opened my mouth wide and panted because I longed for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me after your manner with those who love your name. Establish my footsteps in your word and do not let any iniquity have dominion over me. Redeem me from the oppression of man that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant. Teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep your law. Father, we read this section of Scripture and we have different reactions to it. Maybe we, we don't feel the same way that the psalmist feels. Maybe we feel he's a little over the top. Maybe we want to feel that way, but we don't. God, I pray if there are any in this room that want to feel the way that the psalmist feels about your word, that you would give them the precious gift of illumination this morning to see clearly what he is saying and that they would begin habits of grace, spiritual disciplines that would encourage them to dive into your word and to see everything that it says. God, I pray that you would be our guide this morning. Even as we pray every Sunday from Psalm 119, Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We cannot see them without your aid, without you giving us understanding. So work in us this day. Help us to know what the psalmist knows about the Bible. Help us to feel what the psalmist feels about the Bible and help us to do what the psalmist does with the Bible because of what he knows and because of what he feels. We pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. When you read this section, this little stanza, Psalm 119, verses 129 through 136, you, you might walk away with one of three reactions. Reaction number one might be, yes, amen and amen. Your heart just cries out, yes, I feel the same way that the psalmist does. Reaction number two is maybe you're not too moved by it. Maybe you go, I get why he says that, but not really there right now. Or maybe if you're honest, in your heart of hearts, you say, yeah, right. That's never been my experience with the Bible. Panting for the Bible, longing for God to come in, I've never been there. Well, the purpose of this sermon this morning is to convince you as to why the psalmist says what he says, why he feels the way he does about the Bible. It's to convince you that the Bible makes no mistakes, that the Bible can be understood. The Bible is not boring, but there are many boring people who read it. The Bible is the most relevant thing that you can and must and should read every single day. And I want you to see how the psalmist approaches the Word of God, how he responds to the Word of God. And I, I want to do it in three ways. So these are the outline. We can't, like I said, study all of 119, and this is really an overview of our study this summer of Psalm 119. So I just want to split up this sermon this morning into three just simple headings. Number one, what does the psalmist know about the Bible? What does the psalmist know about the Bible? What does he believe about God's Word? What does he know and believe about God's Word? Number two, what does he feel about God's Word? So not only what does he know and believe about God's Word, number two, what does he feel about God's Word? And then finally, number three, what does he do as a result of what he believes and what he feels? 
What does he do as a result of what he believes and what he feels? If you want to put it into another more simple outline, it's, it's head, heart, and hands, right? It's what does he know, what does he believe, what does he feel in his heart, and what does he do based on what he feels? And I think that we can go backwards and ask, what are we doing? And if we aren't doing what the psalmist is doing, then maybe it betrays that though we might say we believe something about the Bible, functionally we don't. If we aren't doing what the psalmist is doing, just work backwards and figure out what do you really feel about the Bible? What do you really believe about the Bible? Because if you believe and feel what the psalmist believes and feels, you will do what the psalmist does. And if you're not doing what the psalmist does, maybe you don't believe and feel what the psalmist believes, even though you might say you do. So this is going to get into the heart of this psalm and why the psalmist sings with such exuberance over the word of God. Number one, what does the psalmist believe about God's word? What does he know and believe about God's word? Two things. He believes that God's word is true and trustworthy. He believes God's word is true and trustworthy. And second, we'll get to it in a little bit. He believes that the word demands what is right. So number one, he believes that God's word is true and trustworthy. We're not going to go outside of Psalm 119 this morning. We're going to stay here. So I'm just going to give you the verse heading since there's a lot of them, 176 verse heading. I'm just going to give you the number and we can move around. We're going to move around a lot in Psalm 119. He believes that God's word is true and trustworthy. Uh, verse 42, go to verse 42. I want to have an answer for him who reproaches me because I trust in your word. I trust it. He trusts in the word of God. Verse 89, forever, O Lord, your word is settled or established in the heavens. It will never be moved. It's never changing. So he trusts it. He knows that it's never changing. 96, I have seen a limit to all perfection. Your commandment is exceedingly broad. I've seen a limit to perfection. Even the most beautiful thing that you love, the, the most cherished possession that you have in this life, there is some amount of imperfection to it. But the psalmist says there is no imperfection to God's word. There's always an imperfection to something in this life except for God and his word. It's perfect. 142. 142. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness and your law is truth. So your righteousness is everlasting and your word comes from your righteousness. So therefore it's everlasting and it's true. It's true and it's truth. It's the, it's the standard of truth. It's the standard of what is true. And 160. I love this verse. The sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. I love how the psalmist splits this out. The sum of your word is truth. All of it is, the whole Bible is truth. But then if you pick out every single part, it is also true as well. And it's everlasting in its truth. It can be really hard these days to know what is trustworthy. You have to be very discerning. Uh, our, our politicians, right? We have, we have fact checkers when our politicians speak to check the truthfulness of their statements. And then now we have fact checkers to fact check the fact checkers. So we have the politician speak, a fact checker check, and then a fact checker check, the fact checker checks it. We have a lot of people out there that are not speaking truth, and that are not to be trusted. Um, you can't trust, I don't know if this, is, uh, if this will blow your mind this morning, but I, I hope you know, not everything on the internet is trustworthy, right? 
I hope you know that. You can't even trust everything that you see anymore. You can't even trust everything that you see. Photoshop has just taken every possibility of a trustworthiness of a picture or of something that you see. It can be Photoshop, so you can't even trust. Can't trust what you hear, can't trust what you read, can't trust what you see. The psalmist says you can trust everything you read, hear, and see in this book. Everything is trustworthy. It's firmly fixed in the heavens, so it's never going to move. It's never going to change. There's no limit to its perfection. It cannot be corrupted, and it endures forever, which means it never wears out. So he believes that the word of God is true and trustworthy. Second, he believes, this is under what he believes. He believes, number one, the word of God is true and trustworthy. Number two, he believes that the word demands what is right. The word demands what is right. It demands what is right. This is a very important point. Verse 75. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Your judgments are righteous. So God gives a judgment. Even if he afflicts us, it's not because he's any less good. It's not because his commandments are not helpful or not good. It is because he is good that he even brings affliction into our lives to bring us back to the word. But God's judgments are righteous. This is, the psalmist is saying what you command is right. I love how our brother Sergio, when he was walking us through one of the stanzas in Psalm 119, he went back a step further uh, to the starting point of this statement. Not only does God demand what is right, but he has the right to demand. He's God. He's king. And so often I think we, we struggle with Okay, he's God, he's king, he has the right to demand, but are his demands right? Are they good? The psalmist believes that they are. 86, all your commandments are faithful. They have persecuted me with a lie. Help me. So I've got people over here persecuting me, but God, your word never does. Your word is faithful. It sticks with me. It stays by me. 128, therefore I esteem right all of your precepts concerning everything. I esteem right every precept you have about everything. There's nothing that God commands or tells you about himself or what you should do that is not right. It's right. And he hates every false way. And 137. 137. Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. Because the judgments come from God and he is righteous and he is upright, therefore his judgments, his word will be righteous and upright as well. We talk a lot in my Bible class at school here, we talk a lot about God's word. And I want these kids to know that the word of God is trustworthy, it's true, it's reliable, and it's relevant. And one of the reasons why we know it's trustworthy and true and reliable and relevant is because there are many things that God cannot do. And I, I tell my students, do you believe God can do anything? And they say, God can do anything. And I say, no, God can't do everything. And I walk them through. There are certain things God can never do. He can't change. Praise God he can't change. He can't tell a lie. He can't sin. There are many things God can't do, and we praise God that he can't do them because now we have an anchor in something that's immovable, that's unchangeable, and we know he's never going to lie to us. He will never lie to us. He's never going to sin. He's never going to get anything wrong. And therefore, if that's who God is, then whatever he speaks is trustworthy. It's reliable. One thirty-seven. Uh, when he says that, 
Righteous are you, O Lord. He's going back to the character of God. And he's saying, because I know who you are, God, I know that your commandments are good. They're righteous. Notice that the psalmist does not say, well, I don't like your rules, but they're in here, so I'll do them. He says, I love your rules. Now, I think it's okay if you are in a process of discipleship. I think it's a good step to say, I don't like that rule, but I'll submit to God, so I'll do it. That's an okay step in discipleship, but you don't want to stay there. You want to press through to why is this a good thing? Why is God commanding this? I, I, whether it's years and years and years in youth ministry or now teaching the, the blessing of teaching high schoolers now, I am just shocked by how many students from Christian homes know what the rule is and have no idea why they should do it. They have no idea why God made that rule. And honestly, that's, for a lot of them, why they decide, I don't need to keep the rule. Because there's no real reason. And parents, I don't know if you do this. I understand why you would say this. But we, we are supposed to be imaging who God is to us as our father to our children. And how many times do our kids say, can I do this or, or, or can I not do this? And we say, no, can't do that. And they ask, why? And you say, because I told you so. Now, okay, I understand. I, time out. I'm a parent. I understand that sometimes, let's be honest, it's just because I don't want to hear my kids talking to me anymore. Please go away. Sometimes it's genuinely, I'm concerned about their heart because they're not submitting. And so my kids... They know. They're allowed to ask mom and dad any time that they want. They just have to say, yes, I'll do that. I may I ask why I have to do it, but I'll totally do it. I'm not going to say no. But sometimes it's because we don't really even have a good reason. Remember one time I was sitting in a Lazy Boy that we have, the brown chair that many of you have sat in at our house. And I was sitting there, and I think I was reading, and uh, my nose started running. And I said, Chelsea, I yelled in the other room, Chelsea, can you give me a Kleenex? And she goes, sure, Dad, may I ask why? Because she was, I think, practicing violin. Sure, Dad, may I ask why? And she starts walking out, and I said, I was thinking through my response. My response is because I'm lazy and I don't want to do it myself. <laughs> I thought, that's a terrible response. I said, never mind, go back to practicing violin, I'll do it myself. You realize, God never says in the Bible, I'm going to give you a command and do it just because I said so. It's always connected to his character. It's always connected to his goodness. There is always a good reason for the command that he gives you. We might not always see it, and it might be really hard to live out. But I, I, just, I would plead with all of us and encourage you, if there is a command that you struggle to live out, go back to why God gave you that command. Because it's emanating from his goodness, his love for you, his character. God never gives us a command in an arbitrary way. He's never just issuing orders because he can or just because he wants to make rules. Every single rule he makes comes from his character to help keep you safe and to give you the most blessed life you could possibly live. He wants you to live life the way he designed it to be lived. And since he designed life, he knows the rules that make it work the best. I do this with my students all the time. Just take a couple examples. Think about drinking. God says you're not allowed to get drunk why are you not allowed to get drunk? Does God know that getting drunk is incredibly fun? It's one of the most enjoyable experiences. And he says, you know what? I'm going to just say no, because I'm going to say no. no he, he made your body. He knows how your liver functions. He knows this is really damaging to you. 
He knows what happens when you consume that much alcohol. The next day, maybe you're not alert. Maybe you don't go to work on time. Maybe because you don't go to work on time over and over and over again, you lose your job. You lose your job. You lose your house. You lose your house. You have to move somewhere else. God says, I know the way life works. And therefore, I'm going to say, don't go get drunk. Because I love you and I want to keep you safe. I want you to have the best life that there is. Every single command God gives, he does it that way. They're always just. They're always best. They're always for our good. He never, God never demands what is impure, unwise, unloving, unkind. Even if his commands are hard, they're always for our good. They're always for our good. Go back to the very beginning of this psalm, verse 1. How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. He knows, I'm giving you my law so that you can have a blameless and blessed life. A life that's blessed. This is all the way back in Psalm 1. Oh, the blessednesses. It's in the plural in Hebrew, the esherei, the blessednesses. You just cannot even count how amazing your life could be and all the blessings that are inside of it if you just obey God. Verse 6, you won't be put to shame because you're living in his commands. Verse 9, your ways will be kept pure because you're living in his commands. Verse 24, you'll be counseled when you don't know what to do because he has given you commands. Verse 98, you will be made wise even if you are simple because you have God's commands. And verse 105, go turn to that one. You know this passage, you know this verse. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I love this verse, not just because I grew up singing the old song about your word is a lamp, thy word back then, thy word is a lamp. I love this verse because notice what it tells us God, God's word shines on and what it does not illuminate. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That's telling us very clearly, implicit in that statement, God does not tell us everything about everything. We've got a lamp shining at our feet, we've got a light lighting up our path, and that's all we need to know. He's going to give us exactly what we need to know in those moments. But sometimes we say, I want to know other things. I want to know what's going on over there. And it's dark over there, and I can't tell. And God does not say, I'll shine a light over there. He's just saying, I've got your feet, and I've got your path. I will give you exactly what you need to know, when you need to know it, to keep you safe and to keep you blessed. What do you believe about God's word? The psalmist believes it's true and trustworthy, and that all of the demands that God makes upon us are right. Sometimes we think of God's commands like a child would think about their parents' decisions. Well, parents are true, but I don't like their rules, and sometimes they're wrong. I, I get rules wrong all the time. I feel like sometimes I've said, I'm sorry, and I, I need your forgiveness to my kids more than they say it to me. I'm, I'm a mess, and kids can see right through us, right? They know when we're missing it. Sometimes we think about God's rules like an athlete might with a coach. Okay, your decisions are right, but you yourself are not infallible. And sometimes, I don't know if you ever had this when you were playing a sport. If you played a sport, I always found it very ironic that many times throughout my athletic career, the coach would tell me to do something, sometimes saying, why can't you get this right, when all I would have to do is say, can you do it? And he would have said, no, I can't do that. Sometimes the coaches around us were like, well, I, I think I might be a better athlete than you are. We can't say that with God, but sometimes we feel that. God, we're kind of like this. You make rules, but I can make rules too. Maybe sometimes my rules are better than yours. 
Maybe you feel like God's just a friend giving you counsel. That maybe not every bit of counsel is the wisest, but you know that he loves you. But he just doesn't know you very well and he doesn't know how to live life. No, guys, God loves us. He knows us. He made us. And he gave us his word as a revelation to us of him and himself and his purposes for us. He is to be trusted. His word is trustworthy and it demands what is right. Number two, big question number two. What does the psalmist feel about God's word? So we know what he believes about it. Now, what does he feel about it? Uh, Number one, he delights in it. He delights in it. He delights. Verse 14, if you go back to verse 14. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. The the sound of joyful shouting and the salvation is in the tents of the righteous. Joyful shouting. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm in the wrong section here. Verse 14. There it is. It's the same idea. Joyful, but rejoicing in the way of your testimonies as in much riches. He says, "I'm, I'm rejoicing in your testimonies the same way I would if I hit the jackpot. I love your testimony so much that I rejoice just like if I had hit the jackpot. Just scale it back. We're not hitting the jackpot anytime soon, but just scale it back. The other day, I reached into my pockets and I found a $1 bill. I found I don't ever carry cash. Somehow somebody had given me a dollar bill. I, found, I felt like the richest person in the world. I pulled out the $1 bill. I have a one in my pocket. I felt so excited. And God says, God's word says, Finding his word is better than hitting millions and millions of dollars. It's better than all the riches in the world. Verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. Verse 103, they are sweet to the taste. He describes it like better than honey. Honey doesn't really do it for me. I'm not a big honey fan, but for me it's chocolate. Better than chocolate. God's word is better than than chocolate. For me, you just say, God's word is better than honey. I go, hmm. You say, God's word is better than chocolate. I go, oh, it must be really, really good. That's what God's word is. Verse 111, they are the joy of my heart, the psalmist says. Verse 129, they are wonderful. He uses the language of affections, of emotion, and of joy. You might say, well, I'm not really a reader. I'm not really a studious book type. Let me just ask the question. Totally understand that. When is it that you do delight to hear somebody speak or to read what somebody has said? Here's when we do delight in hearing somebody speak or reading what somebody said. When we're curious about what they're saying. When we're wondering if there's great benefit to us if we do read it. Somebody gives you medicine, here, take the medicine. I will read the directions on it. I want to make sure I'm taking the medicine correctly. I don't want to do damage to my body. So, I will stop and read. If it's written by somebody you love, you're going to read it if it's written by somebody you love. If it's something that maybe could prevent danger in your life, if you think that it's all about you, if you think that somebody's writing something all about you, you're going to want to read it. And if it was about someone you loved, sometimes I'll get letters about my kids. I, I, I save those. I save letters that somebody writes. Your your child was so much fun today. I am so glad I had them in my VBS crew, whatever. Like, if I know that a letter is about Ethan, I am saving that letter. If Chelsea did something that's worthy of somebody writing a letter, I'm saving it. 
because it's about somebody I love. All of those things are true about the Bible. It's great benefit to us. It's written by somebody that we love. It's written about somebody that we love. It prevents danger, and it's written for us. It's about us. That's why the psalmist says, I love your law. Verse 97, I love, oh, how I love your law. Verse 167, I love your commandments exceedingly. Sometimes it's hard to love the commands of God. Sometimes it's hard to read. As we prepare to read and study the book of Esther, just I, I want to remind you, the blessing of reading the Bible and then also the ability that you have to read it. You can read the whole Bible. The Bible on tape or on CD, it's not on tape really anymore, or on an app now, I guess. Uh, it, if you just play it from Genesis 1 all the way through to Revelation, it's about 71 hours worth. If it were an audiobook, 71 hours. The average person in the United States watches that much television in less than two weeks. You just set aside your TV for two weeks, you could read the whole Bible or listen to the whole Bible. In no more than 15 minutes a day, you can read through the Bible in less than a year. 15 minutes. Sometimes I think that throughout my day, I don't think about anything for longer than 15 minutes. Just staring at something, wondering, what am I, what am I doing? 15 minutes. Just carve out 15 minutes. And you could read through the Bible in a year. Five minutes a day, you could read through the Bible in less than three years. So, as our brother Marty told us this morning, uh, R.C. Sproul said it this way, Here, then, is the real problem of our negligence of the Bible. We fail in our duty to study God's Word, not so much because it's difficult to understand, not so much because it's dull or boring, not because uh, it's any of those things, but because it is work. Our problem is not a lack of intelligence or even a lack of passion. Our problem is that we are lazy. So I encourage you, at the outset of this semester, diving into the book of Esther, find time, make time, prioritize time to be in the Word, to listen to God address you. Listen to the story of one man. There's a man in Kansas City. This is a story told by Robert Sumner in a book called The Wonder of the Word of God. There's a man in Kansas City who was severely injured in an explosion. His face was badly disfigured. He lost eyesight in and he also lost both of his hands. He had just become a Christian when the accident happened, so one of his greatest disappointments was that he could no longer read the Bible. But then he heard about a lady in England who read Braille with her lips. Hoping to do the same, he sent for some books of the Bible in Braille. But he discovered that the nerve endings in his lips had been too badly damaged to distinguish the characters. One day as he brought one of the braille pages to his lips, his tongue happened to touch a few of the raised characters and he could feel them. And like a flash, he thought, I can read the Bible with my tongue. And at the time of Sumner writing the book, which was over two decades ago, that man had read through the whole Bible four times using his tongue. I don't know about you, but that just puts my Bible reading to shame. <laughs> Never once had to read the Bible with my tongue. I can just sit and let the Bible be read to me. I can open, how, in almost every room in my house, I have a Bible that I can just flip open to. But this man, just like the psalmist in Psalm 119, says, I delight in this so much that I cannot let a day go by, even if it means I have to use my tongue. I love the word. 
The flip side of delighting is that you will have indignation when people around you don't keep God's word. Let me just give you these verses because we're going to run out of time. Verse 53, I have indignation over those who don't keep your law. Verse 136, he cries because people don't keep the law. 139, they forget God's words and he's angry in his heart. Verse 158, he loathes people that do not keep the word. This language of loathing or indignation may seem harsh to us, but that's not a testimony about how much we love people. That's a testimony of how little we treasure the word of God. If we treasured it, we would feel the same way that the psalmist feels. Just like if somebody were to come to you, if you're married, and somebody were to come to you and say, your spouse is wretched, miserable, ugly, vile, and worthless we would not think it some measure of your character for you to be tolerant and respond by saying, hey, everyone's entitled to their own opinion. Go ahead, you can think that. No, that doesn't mean that you are a kind, loving person. We would want a response of, no, you cannot speak of my spouse that way. The same is true about the Bible. If you understand the beauty that is here, and the safety and the blessing that's here, you are going to plead with people to respond in obedience, and you're going, to, you're going to struggle when people aren't obeying. The second thing that the psalmist feels is he desires that he want, would come to know, understand, and be led in God's word. So he has a desire to know, understand, and be led in God's word. To know, understand, and be led. This is how he feels. Since he knows that the Bible is trustworthy and true, since he knows that God demands what is right, And since he delights in it, then he wants to live it out. That's all he's saying. He wants to come to know, understand, and be led in God's word. Verse 27, make me understand the way of your precepts so that I will meditate on your wonders. Verse 29, remove the false way in me and help me. I want to be led, but I need help. Verse 33, teach me. 34, give me understanding. Verse 35, make me to walk in them. He knows he cannot do this on his own. At least 14 times in this psalm, he says this, please help me, help me. Even if it brings affliction, in verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but when you afflicted me, then I kept your commands. Verse 71, it was good to be afflicted so that I could learn. I want the word of God. So the psalmist trusts, this is what he believes about God's word. He trusts in it. He knows it's trustworthy and true, and he knows it demands what is right. How does the psalmist feel about it? He delights in it and he desires to live it out. So, number three, finally, what does the psalmist do? Just really quickly, verse seven, what does he do? Knowing what he knows, feeling what he feels, what does he do? Verse seven, I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. Give thanks. Verse eight, I shall keep them or obey them. Verse 11, I will treasure them in my heart. Verse 15, I will meditate on your precepts. Verse 46, I will speak of your testimonies before kings. Verse 58, I seek your favor with all of my heart. I seek, I'm praying, I earnestly want this. And verse 172, my tongue will sing of your word. Seven things. Seven things that the psalmist does in response to what he believes and what he feels. He sings, he speaks, he studies, he stores up, he obeys, he praises, and he prays. That's, that's the CBC worship service, right? We, we, we sing the word, we speak the word, we study the word, we store up the word, we obey the word, we praise God for the word, and we pray 
that God would help us keep it and pray God's thoughts back to him. This is everything we're about. This is why next Sunday we are going to begin studying through the book of Revelation together. We want to know the word. We want to treasure Christ. This is why we're going to study the book of Esther together and just go very slowly through that book and figure out what is this book saying about who God is, about who we are. Jeffrey Thomas says this in in closing. Do not expect to master the Bible in a day or a month or a year. Rather, expect often to be puzzled by its contents. It's not all equally clear. Great men of God often feel like absolute novices when they read the word. The Apostle Peter said that there were some things hard to understand in the epistles of Paul in 2 Peter 3.16. I'm so glad that he wrote those words because I've felt that often. Do not expect always to get an emotional charge or a feeling of quiet peace when you read the Bible. By the grace of God, you may expect that to be a frequent experience, but often you will get no emotional response at all. But just let the word break over your heart and mind again and again and again as the years go by. And imperceptibly, there will come great changes in your attitude and outlook and conduct. You'll probably be the last to recognize these. Often you will feel very, very small because increasingly the God of the Bible will become to you wonderfully great. So go on reading the Bible until you can no longer read it. And then you will not need the Bible anymore because when your eyes close for the last time in death, you will open them to the Word of God in flesh. That same Jesus of the Bible whom you have known for so long, standing before you to take you forever to His eternal home. Brothers and sisters, we have the privilege this morning not only of studying the Bible and reading it together, but celebrating and remembering our Savior, who perfectly lived out every single command in this book. We fail over and over and over again. And when we come to this table, we don't come saying, I can eat of it because I'm worthy. We say, I can eat of it because He is worthy. He's kept every single command that we so often disobey and neglect. He is our perfection, our righteousness. And so what more could God say to us than he's already spoken in his word? Let's cling to him. Let's find our refuge in him. We'll confirm these things to our hearts as we sing. I'm going to ask the ushers as we sing to pass out the communion elements, and then we'll take some time taking them together. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, these elements are for you. Take them as they're they're going by. Hold on to them because we take them together as a church family. If you do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you don't know why God's word is beautiful and amazing. You don't know why Jesus Christ is everything to us. First of all, just let these elements pass you by. They're for believers. But secondly, don't leave until you talk with one of us. We want to help you know why Jesus is more valuable than anything this world has to offer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. As the psalmist does in Psalm 119, we're blown away that you would give us this gracious gift. And we know that it points us to our inadequacies. We know it points us to our Savior, who is our standing place, our perfection. So we cling to your word and we cling to Christ. We cling to the word of God and we cling to the God of the word. 
And we celebrate Jesus Christ now, the perfect fulfillment of every single command. God, help us to celebrate with joy and with thanksgiving in our hearts.